This morning, I want to share with you some stuff that I saw recently. Have you ever uncovered something? What I mean by that is, you know, if you've done some renovation, there are times where, and you've seen stories of this probably, maybe you've experienced it yourself, where you like tear up this carpet because you need to replace the carpet and you look and underneath the carpet, there's like, wow, there's hardwood floors there. And then you've had, the, you've had the thought, and you're like, why would anyone ever cover this up? It had no idea the gem that was underneath this carpet, you know? Or you tear down a particular wall or some different, you know, paper around there, and you just see some different things. I saw some cool stuff this week. There's some uncover. If you type in cool stories of uncoverings, you see, like, uh, you know, burial grounds that have been uncovered. You know, there's someone who was building something with a house. The next thing you know, they, there's all these, there's mummies from Egypt or not, I don't know, not Egypt, but just different kinds of crazy stuff. Anyway, I was looking and there was this one where this guy had pulled up this carpet, was getting ready to renovate his house. And underneath the carpet was this huge tile monopoly board, like a life-size monopoly board that was underneath this, this room I don't know if it must have been a pretty big room, but it was just this cool monopoly board that was under there. Um, you just never know what you're going to find. Um, in one particular case, this couple had bought this house, and they were knocking down this wall. And as they're pulling back the drywall, all of a sudden they see cash, $500,000 worth of cash that was in the middle of of one of their walls. Of course, I'm sure it was probably some kind of drug money. Who, who knows what all that was? Um, but $500,000 cash within this wall. You never know what you're going to uncover. You never know what might be behind that wall. And, you know, personally, one of the things that I've had to uncover lately has been my backyard. And Diane can attest to this, that I've been horrible at keeping up with our, with our around the outside of the house and I've shared this before, that just leaves, you know, we have trees that kind of hug our house. And so leave after leave have, has fallen over the last couple of years and I haven't been able to keep up with it. But in our backyard, finally, I've gotten all this stuff up. And in the back, there's this area that, you know, I'd almost forgotten about that was this perfect fire pit. Okay, so this is already an invitation at some point when I finish the rest of the yard. Okay, but this perfect fire pit with this gray slate stone, you know, a little gravel in between that had been buried under a, probably about a foot or more of, of just leaves. And if you leave leaves too long, it gets even worse. It turns into dirt, okay? So it's just been quite an, an amazing process. But what's exciting is, is when you uncover that and when you really see what's there, you see the potential, you see the beauty. You know, man, we can have family over, we can have friends over, and we can get around a campfire now. And we can, you know, and it, I kind of got excited when I pulled that back and I started to, to do other things. And next thing you know, Diane comes home and I'm, I'm out there with, with this smoker on my deck, smoking meat. And like, I've, I've got this umbrella that I've put in this old table, and she's like, you know, it's like, what's going on out here? When you uncover and you see the potential, when you see what's really there, it's exciting, and it's beautiful. And I want you to keep that metaphor in your head, because one of the things that I believe is that Jesus has been covered up in some ways. 
He didn't cover himself up. When you look at our culture, Jesus has been covered up with all kinds of, of things that are, are not actually who he is. He's been covered up. He's been buried. We don't really see the true Jesus. And what I mean by that is that you know, we have a, a, just a culture full of, of people that think Jesus is a certain way when Bible, the Bible actually says he's a different way. You know, we have some people that think that Jesus was, was just a good man. That he was a good teacher. Some people that think he was a prophet, and and and, but but even he was much more than that. When we look at Scripture, Jesus claimed that he was God, and he is God. And so you can hear the old argument that comes from C.S. Lewis that, according to Jesus, he was either a liar, he was a lunatic because he held on to his lies to be nailed to a cross, if that was the case. So he'd be more than a liar, he'd be a lunatic. Or he's who he said he is, which means he's Lord. He's God, he's King of Kings. But, but what's happened in culture, the, the covering that I'm talking about, though, too, is that we had this group of, uh, of people, not just in our culture, but across the world as well, that, that see Jesus and they don't see the love that we see. They don't see the grace that we see. They look at his followers or his people and they think many times that, that Jesus is a wrathful, judgmental individual. They don't understand the love and grace that we see clearly in Scripture. Because, quite honestly, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to take the time to read and to find out, are you? You know, I don't know how much, for example, you know, Madonna, that you know about um, uh, Mormonism. Probably know zero, if anything. What little you know is probably from Mormons you've met, people knocking on your door, stuff on TV. You haven't taken the time, probably, and you don't need to, I'll tell you right now, to sit down and to read the Book of Mormon. What you understand is from the people that you see, and unfortunately with Christianity many times, what we are encountering is that they're not reading Scripture, they don't understand. All they know is what they've heard and what they've experienced through church people. And unfortunately, sometimes, many church people are some of the nastiest, bitter, unloving people that you'll ever meet. And so those things have been kind of layered on Jesus, this layers of, of leaves and dirt and stuff that don't belong. Now, for the sake of those people who don't follow Jesus, I believe that our church has been called to be a church that is involved in the uncovering process when it comes to our faith in Christ. That we are called to be the kind of church that is uncovering Jesus and showing Jesus for who he truly is, what he truly stands for. And that's a, that's a, that can be a pretty large task because there's a lot of culture that goes against us that is deeply ingrained within people. You know, Jesus asked his disciples at one point who they thought he was. And the different people around him said, well, this guy is a prophet. We think he could be, um, you know, good teacher, this, that, and the other. And, of course, Peter says, you're, you're Jesus, you're God. And he said, that's great. You know, and he, and he blessed Peter in that moment. But even during that time period, people thought different things about Jesus, in particular the religious folks, again, going all the way back to the time of Christ, 
would look at Jesus and they, they were literally trying to kill him. There was this fight over power and over control. And they were looking for an opportunity to take Jesus down. The religious leaders, even during that point, because they did not believe or see that he was God. Going all the way back, <coughs> even to that point. What I want to do for the next three weeks is I want to remind and fan into flame, if you will, what we have been called to do as a church this morning. I want to take a clear look at our vision, okay? And I want to give you three things today, three things I believe that our church, three things that our, that our church believes that are worth fighting for, albeit even worth dying for. If, there's, if our vision isn't strong enough to say that, then there's a problem. But I believe there are three things that we're called to that are worth fighting for, they're worth dying for. They're that serious. Over the last five years, that, that approximately five years that Realize has been in existence, we've kind of wrestled with that. Who are we? And we came out of the harvest, and we've kind of become our own thing, and We've kind of laid out some principles in the past and values and whatnot, but I really believe that over the last, the last year that God's kind of allowed me to kind of boil those things down into some statements. I want to give this to you this morning. I want to share those three things with you. Because if we can understand how important these things are, I think we can rally around them. We can come together. We can build a stronger church so that we can be a part of, of accomplishing those things. So, so here are the three things, and, and it may not sound so amazing out loud at first, but I'll, we're going to dig into those things because there's a lot of values that fall under these three things. So these three beliefs, if you will, could almost be the pillar of real life, okay? And number one is this. <coughs> it's a belief in love and grace, this is where it starts. This is where it begins because people need to know that they're loved and that they can be forgiven for anything. It all starts with love and grace. We could spend so much time going through Scripture and diving into what Scripture has to say about the aspects of love and grace. Under this heading, of course, falls the aspect of forgiveness and, and what God does in, in the human heart about the aspect that God himself is love. We learn what all that is as a result of who Christ is. So part of this uncovering, if you will, is no, that the God that we serve, Jesus is a, is a God of love and grace and forgiveness. And we're, we're actually going to focus on that one today. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into that in the sermon today. But, but number one is love and grace. Is that worth fighting for? I would say it is. If you don't have the love of God, if you don't have the grace of God, if you don't have forgiveness, that is something worth fighting for, something worth dying for, that others would know in addition to us. The second thing is this, and this is what flows from that love and grace, is reconciliation and connection. 
People need to be reconciled with God. It's one thing to know that He loves them, to know that He forgives them, but there is a moment that comes where you come before God and, and there's a reconciliation where it says, Lord, please forgive me, and I, I, I want to follow you, and I want to be connected with you. I want to understand what life is all about. And that's what we talk about. What is real life? How do you understand what real life is? The source of life is always from Christ. It's always from God. So there has to be a moment of reconciliation and connection. We've shared this verse out of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, chapter 5 for so long where we are ambassadors for Christ and that we have a ministry, the Bible says, of reconciliation. Where it says that, that Jesus was no longer counting sins against one another. But there still has to be that, you know, if you, you have a gift for someone, I could have, we could have brought this, this Bible for Jordan today, but it could have just left it sitting up there. You have to take a gift even though it's free, even though it's paid for, even though everything's been done, you still have that moment where you accept the gift or not. So reconciliation and connection, both of those things come together because reconciliation is, is that moment of turning, it's that moment of realizing that, yes, God, I want to follow you. And, of course, connection is that, that aspect of connecting with God and growing and understanding what life is all about. It's worth dying for. It's worth fighting for. And here's the third thing. Third thing is this, is, is truth and authenticity. So number one is love and grace, reconciliation and connection, and truth and authenticity. Grace is no good if it's not based in truth. Forgiveness is no good. Grace, forgiveness, all those things. If you never understand the aspect of what truth is, it doesn't work. Those things always have to be balanced together. It's based on, of course, when we think about truth, this is the most basic thing we can point to, of course, is Scripture. How do we know anything at all from what the Bible has to say? It's always grounded in truth. It's always based in what Scripture has to say. All these points and our vision and our calling, all that stuff, without truth, it's meaningless. And Christ is truth. He is our truth. The Word of God is what we lean on. It's what we stand on. We can't be a, a church that is, is loving and gracious, but, but then doesn't say at the same time, but this is how God said you're supposed to live. And the reason for that is not to be judgmental the reason for that is to understand point two again what real life was all about hey the best way to live you know is this you um it fits it works this is how it's been designed if you ignore the design you know david and i this morning got together and we're trying to get a, a soundboard back there to work we had the speakers coming out this way, but then the monitors for us to hear as the band, we couldn't get them to work, you know? And, and, and David could have been like, you know, I'm the one that was trying to work it out. David could have been like, it's all right, Lance. I love you, man. It's all good. Everything is just going to be great. I'm here for you. But if I don't ever plug them in the right spot, it doesn't work. I don't hear anything. Thanks for your love and your grace, David, but it's not doing me a bit of good right now. The truth is it has to be plugged in here where you're not going to get any sound. 
You're not going to get any power. You're not going to get that experience, right? So truth is important. Truth is not meant to be beaten upside the head. It always comes with, with love, but that truth has to be a part of who we stand for. And the other side of that that I love as well is authenticity. That's something that we've preached since we started. That's the other aspect of, of being real, of being real people. And I wrote this down because I, I was trying to think, what does that mean? People need to know what's true. And I, as I said, without truth, grace is worthless. But they also need to encounter real people who flesh this out, right? And people that are honest about their mistakes. I think that helps to see authenticity. When people are real, they don't always share just the great stuff about them, right? That's what happens on Facebook. You go on Facebook and everyone only puts just the good picture, right? If you can take a selfie at the beach, Diane and I had the opportunity to go this past weekend, you know, we might take a couple of pictures and then she's like, let me see that. Because she's going to go through, nope, don't want this. And I, she's going to put up the very best one. Isn't that what you do? You don't just take, a, take one and throw it up. Maybe some guys do because we don't care, you know. I was picking my nose in that, oh, whatever, it's, it's up there. But, you know, no, we, you put up the very best. And that's what church has turned out to be sometimes, is, oh, we put our best face forward, this is what we look like, and everything has to be smoothed out and, and perfect. And if you've been to real life at any point at all, you realize, or any time at all, that's not how we are. I was worried about the third song. I thought, if I don't remember how this starts, I might have David just play it for a second, and then we'll sing it together. That doesn't happen in other churches. You walk in, it's polished. People are like, hey, welcome to First Baptist or welcome to wherever, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a million First Baptists, by the way. Okay, I don't know who really was first. But anyway, you know, hey, welcome. You come in the door, you get the bulletin. Everything's, you know, so smooth from the top to the bottom. You know, I'm not saying it's, it's bad to be professional. That's great. You want to give God your very best in all of life. But is there ever a place where things mess up? You know, or it's just, it's almost like it's just too real. You know, it's too, there's something wrong if there's not some kind of flaw. You know, you ever tried to collect some things and if the collect, you know, if collectibles are exactly like, if there's no imperfections at all, it's almost like they're worthless. You know what I mean? I want this mug to be a little bit different than the other mug or this picture is, you know, if it's, it's just not real because real things have issues. Real people have issues. We all know every church has issues. Will we be a place of authenticity where people can actually walk in and realize, I don't have to be perfect to, to be with these people, right? And we, we've talked about this before where Jesus says it's not the healthy who, uh, who need a doctor, it's the sick. You don't, people aren't afraid to walk into a hospital with a bloody arm or a broken, broken leg or you know, an issue. Issues are welcome there. And so... Our church has to be a place of authenticity as well. And that, that takes shape in a lot of different ways. <clears throat> so love and grace, reconciliation and connection, and truth and authenticity. Now here's our target. I want to share this with you just to kind of flesh it out. This is our target, right? Well, first of all, obviously anybody's welcome, okay? Just because our target is a certain group of people that we want to help doesn't mean that you might say, well, I don't fit that target. It doesn't, 
that doesn't matter. But this is our calling as far as the target that we're after for folks. Is this, is, and I think this is, tell me what you think afterwards. People that are interested in discovering more about Jesus, but either don't know him, misunderstand him, or have been wounded in some way by church people or church culture, in parentheses, hopefully not us. Because we're not perfect either. Okay? People that are interested in discovering more about Jesus, but either don't know him, misunderstand him, or have been wounded in some way by church people or church culture, and as a result, don't grasp Jesus' desire for reconciliation and his willingness to offer love and grace for a truly full life. Does that make sense? I believe that's what we've been called to, to reach those kinds of folks. So as I said, I want to focus, though, on, on number one today, on this calling that we have, this belief that we have in love and grace. And I, and I know if I've already taken a lot of time. I'm not going to go crazy deep. But <clears throat> I want to share a, a concept with you as we look at love and grace. Turn in your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 15. just want to throw out a couple of scriptures for you to, to consider today. The beginning of Luke chapter 15, we, we see one of many examples where Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And those two groups of people are essentially, in this time period, the same thing. Tax collectors, sinners, okay? Because, once again, tax collectors were those that would just, didn't matter there was, if the rate was 10%, they could take 20. And they would rake people over the coals and take whatever they wanted. So they were kind of hated. They were kind of in that same category. So this is what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I think that's interesting right there, just to think about that aspect that, that people wanted to be around Jesus. People don't typically want to be around religious people. For the reasons that we mentioned earlier, that they, they think they're judgmental, they're, they're hateful, they're bitter, they're this, they're that. But these guys wanted to be around Jesus. So if people don't want to be around us, if they don't want to hang around you, there might be something with what kind of Christianity you're truly portraying. Now, I just think about the, you know, the church lady from like Saturday Night Live. You know, I mean, no one wants to hang out with that individual. Jesus, people were gathering around him. They wanted to be near him because of who he was, because of how he loved, how he treated people. He was so different. And so because of this, it says in the Pharisees, and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This guy doesn't just let them hang out with them. He, he spends time with these people. He eats with them. There's another passage of Scripture 
And I don't know where it is. I'm just going to basically quote it to you where it says, you know what? Jesus is like, you guys are whining and complaining about me. He's like, you know, John the Baptist came. He wasn't eating or drinking. You didn't believe in him. But the Son of Man, Jesus, he's talking about himself. I came eating and drinking. And you say that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Now, the reason I bring that up is that, that when Jesus was with these sinners, tax collectors, you know, the label that was placed there, he was truly engaged with them. He was truly spending time with them, eating and drinking. If he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, what was Jesus drinking? He was drinking alcohol. I just, I just think that's kind of interesting because, you know, you're not supposed to drink, you hear, in church. But if Jesus drank in his first miracle, I just, that just bugs me, okay? But the whole point that I bring that up is that Jesus was engaged with these folks. He spent time with them. He hung out with them. He wanted to know them. He wanted to be around them because he loved them. Even before they made a decision to follow him. They didn't clean themselves up first and then come to Jesus. Jesus loves sinners. He loves screw-ups. He loves mess-ups and the mistakes. He wants to be around those people. Here's why I say that, because it keeps getting backed up over and over and over, because after this, Jesus says, he says this parable, he says, What man of you, if you have a hundred sheep, and if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He's got a hundred sheep. One of them wanders away. It's a pretty risky thing to leave behind the 99 to go after the one. <coughs> what are the other sheep going to think? Oh. We don't think like that, of course, but if you think about church, we got 99 fine, upstanding church members here. And you got one guy who's just gone off to the bar. Why are you wasting time with him when you have 99 precious souls here? Jesus tells his story, and look at what he says. This is a fascinating thing. He says, just so, in the same way, I tell you, there will be more Joy. Say that with me, those two words. More joy. I think we should say it again. More joy. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is more joy over that over that one individual after going after that sheep, after spending time with the folks that, that truly need it, than there is for the 99 that are just cruising along. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean he doesn't care about you if everything's just great and hunky-dory in your life. But I would think if we really kind of pulled it out, we'd probably feel more like the one sheep rather than the 99. But Jesus says, that's where my heart is. That's where my passion is. And so if that's where Jesus' heart is and his passion is, that's where we should be. 
going after the one, not the 99. I think when you look around the other churches in our area or, you know, in general, there's a, there's a lot of the 99. There's people that are solid, they're established, they're comfortable with church, they've been doing it. That's fine. That's great. But I think we've been called to go after the one, to run after the one that wandered away. They run after the one that doesn't feel like they belong in church. They don't belong with the other 99. They don't fit. They, you know, they've been rejected. They've been, you know, the outcast, whatever. Because, but Jesus says, this is what I celebrate about. This is what I get jazzed up about. This is what I get excited about is that one. This is where the party is. Keep that party idea in your mind. Because Jesus is eating with and drinking with, and I mean drinking, with these folks. And so we have story after story next in the, in, the, in the book of Luke. And the next one is about the story about these lost coins. And, and so there's this lady that has ten silver coins and she loses one. You know, well, do you, do you give up and just say, well, I have nine? <coughs> no, she basically tears apart the house, sweeps up everything until she's found it. And again, Jesus says, just so, or in the same way, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's where the joy is. But then he goes into this amazing story that we've all heard a million times. The story of the prodigal son. I want to encourage you to read it on your own time. But the story of the prodigal son is, is quite amazing. As we know, the, the father basically splits up his inheritance because one of his sons comes to him before he's dead. You know, can you imagine that? Jordan's getting ready to go off to college, and he comes, you know, hey, Dad and, and Ma, I know you're not dead yet, but what you would have given me, can I just have it now? For me, it'd be like, I'm sorry, I have to die before you get whatever I have. You know, I just, I just don't have it, you know? But, I mean, how insulting. So, and Dad, I kind of wish you were dead so I could at least have half of what you, know, you have to offer, Mom and Dad, you know? So, I mean, he comes to his dad and, and, and splits up the money, and it's not like he was taking it to make a grand investment, right? I want to do this so I can start this business and I can do things and build for myself and I'll pay you back, Dad, and I'll do this. None of that. Here's the money. It's crazy enough, God goes, the Father gives it to him. There's kind of love and grace even on the beginning part. There's not this, well, what are you going to do with it? I need a plan. I need this... You know, this like little too loose. You're like, what kind of father is this, you know? The guy takes the money. He doesn't invest it in anything. He goes out and blows it in, in wicked ways, essentially. Till he has nothing. And then on top of nothing, a famine comes. So everybody's suffering to the point that he's wanting to eat pig food. And as you know, the Jews didn't hang out with pigs. It wasn't kosher. Okay? So it's like the lowest you could possibly imagine going. And you know the mentality says, well, why don't I just go back and at least be a servant of my dad? At least to be able to eat. So I have some kind of existence. And of course, we know the story that as he comes back, he's kind of probably rehearsing his mind. He was going to say to dad, you know, dad, I know I'm not worthy to be, you know. And his dad sees him from a distance, goes running after him, which is also undignified for a father during this time. You know, running after his son. It's like the song that we sing earlier, Reckless Love. You know, that's the kind of love that, that God has for us. This tear you down, come after you, I love you kind of, kind of love. 
That's the kind of grace and love that he has. So the, the experience that you see between the father and the son, though, we know what happens is when he comes in, his son starts to give him this speech, Dad, you know, I'm so sorry, this, that, and the other. But it's like he almost like he interrupts him and says, no, look, hey, to his actual servants, get a ring for my son. Get some sandals. Get a cloak. All this stuff that he's undeserving of, we would think. And then on top of that, the thing that just really gets me excited here, when you consider the heart of Jesus, is he throws a party. Kill the fattened calf. The fattened calf was, you know, not just any other cow, right? This is the one that they kind of kept caged up and fed. He's like, you know, here you go, if you eat some more, because one day you're going to be in my belly. You know, you are going to be, you're going to be some grand party one day. It's like taking off the, taking out the, the bottle of wine that's been aged forever, or you just haven't, you're saving that bottle for a specific occasion, you know? Uh, or from, in my case, you know, this, Fancy bottle of whiskey, you know, we're not just going to drink. This is the good stuff. Get out the good stuff. That's Jesus' mentality. That's incredible. There, you don't see any indication of, well, why did you go and waste all this money? Well, you could have done this, and you could have done that, and you, you don't see that conversation even happen. And this is where we start to kind of lean towards the other brother. Because the other brother comes in, of course, and sees that there's a party going on, and he gets ticked off. Do you get ticked off when people get things they don't deserve? Do you get ticked off when people don't get punished for things they should be punished for? How did that person get away with that? If we're all honest, we've had those moments. And we see right there this, this rub, you know. What kind of heart do we have? Do we have the father's heart or the heart of the older brother? What kind of love do you have? Do you have the love of God or do you have that? He told the son, look, we have to celebrate because he was lost and now he's found. He was there, but he came home. He looked up. He, 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 he turned back from that. You've got to understand that, you know, there's, there's no longer any need for that. He's home. That's crazy grace. That's reckless grace, as we would call it, Right? should have had a lecture first before you just welcome him back in, right? At the very least. But Jesus talks about a party. He backs this up even before he gets there with these, these times of celebration. Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. The Pharisees are ticked off. He tells story after story about how God is excited about offering grace offering forgiveness, being a place for, for those that need him. That's where his heart is at. How crazy is this kind of love 
and this kind of grace. I want to look at one last passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> let's turn to let's turn to Luke chapter six. We could really, and we have, and and we'll probably come back to this upon do a whole series again on grace. But I want to, I want, I want this passage to stick in our heads. And I warn you in advance, you're going to be very uncomfortable. But I didn't write it. Jesus is talking here in chapter, Luke 6, verse 27. I want to clarify this aspect of love and grace and, and forgiveness. <clears throat> and look at what Jesus has to say. He says, but I say to you, oh, but I say to you, what are the next two words? In the ESV anyway. I can't hear you. But I say to you, mine says, who hear? But I say to you, who hear? To you who are listening. This isn't the first time you've heard me preach on this. Hopefully we have heard before. Hopefully we've listened before. But I say to you who hear, he says this, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This is already going against everything within us. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. That's, that caught my attention being downtown at Oliver Gospel Mission. Because what goes through my mind as I see these guys in the street is, well, you can go to like 10 different places and get lunch. Why do you need to get it from me? And, and I start saying all these kinds of things in my head. And you, know, and you go down that road of the older brother. He says, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. <laughs> what? How, many, how long have we ignored that passage? You're probably already making plans to ignore that passage. Somebody takes something from me, I'm getting it back. Maybe if it's something I don't care about, you know, like a half-drunk half can of soda, Sure. But if it's something of value, oh, it's, it's coming back, right? I mean, none of you right now probably truly intend to put that into practice, or do you? How do you do that, right? Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You've got to remember who we're who's saying this. 
talking about Jesus here, right? God himself in the flesh never did anything wrong, but he didn't defend himself either. He's in this room surrounded by all these religious leaders, and they're saying, tell us this, tell us that, and punch him in the face, new and those, that kind of stuff. Doesn't try to defend himself. Pilate gives him the opportunity, right, to, to kind of get out of this. Oh, they say you're a king, and this, that, and the other, and, you know, he, he, he doesn't defend. He doesn't fight back. Because he knows who's in control. That's, I kind of think about that aspect of, of vengeance, too, like let, let God repay, let him be the one that does it. God's not just in control of vengeance, he's in control of everything. And the matter is, really what it boils down to is who do you trust? Whose hands are you really putting things in? Because if you're like me, you're a control freak, you want things in your hands. Jesus says this, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the golden rule, right? So he fleshes this out. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. How are you any different, right? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But he says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. After all this, he says, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, <clears throat> for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We're almost done. And then he says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I love this. He says, give, and it will be given to you. How so? He describes with, with good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's, that's some tough stuff to take in. Some tough stuff to live out. It's really fascinating to read. It's fascinating to think through. But then you think, how, does this, how do I actually put this into practice? But this is what Jesus was. This is who Jesus embodied. This is what Jesus did. When you look at the, 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 the life of Christ, this is who he was. And we're called to be like Christ. I wrote down a couple of notes here that I think fit this. A, you know, do you want the love of men or the love of God? Do you want the rewards of men or the rewards of God? 
Because you could ignore this. Continue to maintain control. And miss all the blessings of God. You can continue to ignore it and to trust in yourself. But if you look at yourself, you realize there's, there's a lot of brokenness there. Or you could trust God. That's what all this really boils down to. If someone runs away with something, your thinking is, well, I need that back because I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this and how else am I going to get this done? Where's, where's, you know, if someone steals the money out of your wallet, well, how am I going to pay for groceries, for example? I don't know. How are you? Are you trusting God? You might say that just... Come on, Lance. But there are, there are deeper things than money even. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the forgiveness issue, the, the vengeance issue, the, you know, all this kind of stuff. Are we going to give that to God? Or are we going to try to make, how does it work so far, trying to do it yourself? The whole point of this, and I, I know I have to wrap this up, is, is we need to have the heart of the Father. This reckless kind of love, this love and grace that, that, that doesn't measure things, that doesn't say, but you did this to me, or you hurt me. The love of the Father was thrilled to see his son, excited to see his son, and gave him a bunch of stuff he didn't deserve. It's just crazy love. It's crazy grace. It's that unconditional love that we talk about. You've got to realize something, and, and, and this is hard for a reason because I don't believe we can fulfill this without trusting in God, without the power of the Spirit in our life. To forgive, I believe, is a, is a divine, miraculous thing. Because God forgives, people don't. They say they do, but then they still kind of hold on to that, you know. That's where love says, keep no record of wrongs. But who really lets go of that record? Maybe they don't talk about it, but they still kind of hold it there. So the only way that we can really forgive, the only way we can really love, the only way we can really offer grace is through the power of the, the Holy Spirit of God. But it begins with that willingness, too. If people, the Bible says, they will know they are Christians by what? By their love. This will always be the number one thing for us to work on. I just want to encourage you to think through that this week, as hard as it all is to be able to have that kind of heart. When, when, when you blow up, have that moment to stop and say, all right, where, where am I? Do I have the Father's heart or the heart of the older brother right now? Or let me get back to your heart again. Because it's worth it to remain in that place. The blessings of God are no joke. But do all this and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. How much forgiveness do you want to receive? How much grace do you want to receive? How much love do you want to receive? How generous do you want people to be to you? What do you want? It's very clear, isn't it? We need the Lord's help. And we need to continually (coughs) be reminded of what he's done. I believe the root of unforgiveness for us is that we forget how much we've been forgiven. And the point is, is we will, we will never, no one can ever hurt us as bad as we have hurt Christ. You might think so. But in this life, there's nothing that anyone can do to you or multiple people can do to you that will top what we've already done to Christ. But the good news is, is that the love of Jesus, we have the symbol right here, this representation, this reminder of what Christ has done. His blood that was shed for us on the cross, his body that was broken for us. And we come together now to remember that. 